Brick Moon Fiction presents Nala by Brian Aiello, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. Continuous effort, not strength or intelligence, is the key. From the journals of Sir Randolph Fitzgerald Smith. So, rise up. A Zulu proverb. 1. The reconnoitering train breaks. The force and squeal that makes the first blast from the nearby field gun seem secondary. But a field gun is not secondary. Huge holes appear through what Churchill was told was steel-reinforced wood. Splinters of wood and metal are sent into a death frenzy. Soldiers throw themselves over the shoulder-high wall, hoping to escape the onslaught. But escape means exposure to the rolling grasslands and low shrubs of the South African savanna and being an even better target. Like butter, an officer somewhere nearby says to the soldier next to him. But it proves wasted effort, because he dies not even a moment later, with his skull impaled by a sliver of wood. Churchill wonders how one can summon pith at a time like this. Death feels imminent. Yet jocularity ensues. Remind you of home, Churchill. Smith, Churchill has always considered him something of a dolt, but the world needs dolts too, so he lets him be. He is no stranger to combat, but he is still catching up, and any fool knows catching up to a fight is dangerous. Arriving, as is the case today, armed with pen and no sword, may even be deadly. Through the newly acerated train car, the air feels swampy. It washes over the few dozen unwashed men in the tiny enclosed area. Making it worse is the stench of fear disguised as piss and shit and blood offered by the dying. It's not abnormal the one-time English officer-turned-war journalist thinks. Just a bit of a bother what one goes through if they want to play politics. Politician or writer? He has failed at attaining a parliamentary post once already, and now he is here, even worse off than when he was on the subcontinent, or to the north, because here he has no one to lead. The atmosphere is heavy with cordite, and the fear is almost indelible as he crawls to free himself because movement feels right getting out of the train, a necessity. He does it before deciding on a direction that equals safety. The idea of safety is amateur, and instead many around him point their own weapons out of boar-provided holes and return fire in the hopes to suppress the blistering shooting pointed at them. The world swims in moist heat, a foul-smelling brew that reminds him of India. There, men sweated the plague, grease, and tiger death, here it was the Zulus and Boers who were as much a part of the savannah as the lions and crocodiles. He slaps at the buzz of a mosquito by his ear, or bullet that almost takes his head, and ducks to train floor in a hope to avoid any further in his face reminders that South Africa is at war with the Boers. Bloody hell, he whispers his words, doing nothing to aid in the giant battle that wages, but attracts the attention of an officer just before he is caught in a sudden fit of catching bullets. The field gun does more than just proliferate. It rips free giant portions of the thing once called man. Realizing escape and joining the fight are interlinked, he looks for a weapon to replace the pen that moments before had been in his hand. He succeeds. The MK-1 feels heavy and useless until he manages to find a hole and aim. A boar goes down. Churchill doesn't celebrate. He picks another target, and like practice intends, the bullet does not go to waste. Right-o, Captain Smith says, turning from his own hole in the train wall 
facing the bullet-spitting field gun. Reminds one why he might not give up military service, doesn't it, Churchill? For the Queen and all that, Churchill responds, pulling the lock back a third time and letting loose another round. More for show than determination, he is sure it flies uselessly beyond the battlefield. Captain Smith is a war vet also, on the savannas of South Africa since graduating the Royal Military Academy with Churchill in 95. They knew each other then, and the usual need for mindless chit-chat is absent. Until the firefight erupted, Winston Churchill had been lazily gazing at the Boer landscape while intermittently reading The Land of the Nile Springs, a book about the British war with the Ugandan chief Kabarega. It was written by one of the commanders on the ground and provided a formal telling of the battle. Missing was the blood and guts Churchill knows all too well accompany war. It's easy to add the screams and smells he know exist in battle between the words himself. What to him was most fascinating is that Kabarega took a page from the Zulu playbook of Kill from the Shadows. Now the Ugandans have begun using fear as well to pressure the British off their lands. Will that turn it into a decades-long inflamed boil also? He wonders how far the British will go to win more land in Africa. Soon, rounding up all the natives and putting them into camps is likely the only way to keep their enemy at bay. It told the tale of the British army losing to natives, eventually. Natives, like the Zulus, bested but still haunting the savannah, looking for redcoats to kill in revenge for all the fathers that died a generation before while losing their homeland to the empire. Churchill prefers to be facing the men who were born from the original South African Dutch than the Zulu. At least with the Dutchmen, they could expect quarter if captured, and treatment that came close to humane. The Zulu did not take prisoners when a spear thrust was free. A rumor does persist that they do deal in slaves, though, selling soldiers, Boer and English alike, to the miners who send them underground to die, fetching rocks. And here they were on an old train skirting that border, struggling to survey a terrain with things intent on killing them. God, he misses brown little Colenso. Barely a town, but its canteen was supplied with a bartender always welcoming with a bottle of sherry. Retires from service, yet crossing enemy territory with a rifle in your hands. Churchill, you old dog, you. Giving it away for free, are we? Captain Smith has low-crawled closer. He can see the man's mind is bent toward survival because he is human and no human wants to find out what the Boer plan for POWs is. Churchill is happy to oblige a good idea as he takes aim on the field gun. Its operator goes down. Before he can celebrate, he is dismayed to see how quickly the operator gets replaced. The Boers have nerves of steel and before he can lock another bullet in place, he finds the rifling of the field gun staring him down. The machine could send multiple bullets a second into his body, and this is not only intimidating, but life-changing. Churchill gave up the army to make his way through life as a politically hopeful writer, not to be shot dead. Yet what other choice does he have? If he could back up time and simply jump off the train before the ambush, what would he do then? Head back to London, work the grounds of his cousin's estate? Probably. As if to hunt deer and grouse for the Lord of Marlborough the rest of his life was that bad a lot. He could write books on pheasants and salmon fishing and tell the war stories collected from three different continents already and never have to buy a drink again. All that sounds fine enough, but he is here in Boer-controlled South Africa because he senses there is more to life than being someone great's cousin. In this battle he has done a lot already, 
but not nearly as much as the enlisted who have been turned out by an NCO to engage the ambush head-on. Nothing but bodies thrown out to stop bullets, but they distract the gunner, and in this scenario, that's all that matters. The lack of care in their assault is astounding. The physical prowess that could have occurred if organized, Churchill laments. Soldiers need leading, and that charge was a mess. He has half a mind to get back to Colenso and get his sash back and lead and lead a South African contingent in battle, beat the Boers and sail back to England truly a hero. Instead of keeping them organized and deadly like the British Army is known, the NCO leads them straight into a tsunami of death. The Boers, the Dutch farmers who discovered gold and won't heal to the English, who stare Zulus down day in and day out, have now done the unthinkable again. They have beaten the good guys at war. It's one battle, though Churchill promises himself, many more will come, if he survives. He thinks of Victoria's desire to own Africa. Africa, an ant colony of enemy countries bordering more enemy countries, and here especially, where history shows what the Zulus are willing to lose to earn freedom from the crown. The photographed carnage. The upheaval. It's not really what they do, but more what they could that stirs the imagination. Before Captain Smith can tire of waiting and escape on his own, Churchill responds, I believe we have become useless in this situation, Captain. Might I suggest we find a new one? He turns back to the job at hand, killing Boers, and waits for an answer, noticing a quickly building layer of smoke announcing something on fire. Then he smells oil-treated wood aflame, and near him, men begging to be freed, mixed with the crinkling of meat cooking too fast. Then an explosion and thud of heavy shrapnel hitting the train car. That was possibly the train's engine, dynamited free from the track, Captain Smith volunteers, trying to distract him further. Churchill replies, A writer writes, and I think under the circumstances this writer is sorely short of the words and needs to go on a search of a new story. Someone behind manages to get a door open, and the sudden ajar portal is like a vacuum, sucking smoke and people out onto the African savanna. Churchill rolls in that direction, not noticing or caring if Smith follows. A man makes his own way in the world, Churchill knows, and in battle, fate is sometimes sealed to those around. He finds the door and drops down to the track. Obscured by smoke, he bounds to his feet and runs, whether imagined or real, he feels heavy bullets following that, thankfully, find other warm bodies home to nestle up in. He doesn't run far before finding himself face to face with a short man holding a long knife. 2. Long after Smith lowered his weapon and indicated they run along the track together, Churchill still dutifully follows behind. He runs hunched over for added concealment, but soon... As the lone people on the track of which hundreds of miles can be seen from both directions save the one bend the billowing smoke-like exclamation point of the ambush site is located, it won't be long before they are caught. Churchill holds his rifle steady and Smith fists his folding knife in a way that would do a body ill if used well. They talk to keep their feet moving, but the talk is all mumbles and almost indecipherable. What words they used describe the weather and how miserable travel even outside their horrible train car was. Regardless of everything else, they both agree windowless travel is beyond glorious. Preferable even and goes to show, Churchill, you don't know what you have until you have to endure something worse. 
and he agrees, but maintains his silence as he points at a bunch of dots behind that grow into the distant shape of horses and riders, and eventually farmers turned soldiers. Well, Smith, do we fight till the end? Maybe best to make the sacrifice, I say. But, wanting too much to be in the House of Lords, Churchill eventually lays down his Lee Metford M, because he'd long ago spent its last bullet, and would rather it not kill him. The man who shows up supports a large mustache and a Dutch accent. Name's Botha, and you men are my prisoners. Perfectly understandable, Commander Botha, but we might say I am a journalist covering a war, and this is my guide. Smith groans at the attempt, and Botha and his men laugh. Lies or life, your choice, Mr. Writer. The commander picks up the MK-1 laying just out of Churchill's reach. This is no pen, scribe. Neither of you should be armed if all you are doing is telling stories. Thinking better my prisoner than killed, yeah? And Churchill agrees. Sounds like a fine plan. Smith is silent. He glowers, and Churchill half expects the man to make a run for it, but instead swiftly allows his wrist to be tied and his field jacket removed. They are tethered together and attached to a horse, both reduced to frothing with sweat and breathing hard as they are half-dragged, half-trotted, back to the now smoldering train car. It smells like men who miss their mommy, Smith toys, but Churchill ignores him. The wounded cannot be left. Leave the scraps for the vultures, both are orders, and a small contingency of boar use their pistols to end those that have no worth, right on the spot. Churchill flinches as each round retorts in an echo off the horizon. The ones that remain are few. They look like survivors. An hour ago they looked like professionals off to fight a war, now nothing but refugees covered in drying blood and soot. Get up, Ryder, a Boer soldier demands, nudging Churchill's thigh with the toe of his boot. Churchill obliges, allowing himself to be placed in a covered wagon with half a dozen others. No one talks. No one looks at anyone else. They survived. That's enough for now. But soon they will want more, and who once was a friend could want the same thing. The same thing that cannot be split or dissuaded from attaining. And while Churchill feels something he doesn't like, uncertainty, Captain Smith glowers like he has just started planning something drastic. 3. The wagon is dragged for the remainder of the day. When they arrive where it is told to stop, the sun is gone, and the stars blink as if they know a secret. A hut stands alone in the middle of a tall rise of razor wire. There is the stink of acceptance, and Churchill hates it. Strip, a Dutch accent demands, and the soldiers do, removing any clothing that looks like part of a uniform. They are left in the British-issued underwear, all save Churchill, who has the best undergarment London can provide. Lurking nearby in the shadows, Botha steps forward. Instead of lessening their number with an order to kill, the man with scraps of gray hair on his scalp and cold blue eyes steps up and begins examining them. Before too long, he stops at Churchill and demands, Open your mouth. He peers inside before a surprised squeeze of his testicles. Churchill yelps despite his attempt to be stoic and just get through it. Half the trouble of life is staying alive, and he has already done that. Releasing him, Botha asks, Name? Churchill. Winston Churchill. Tell me, Churchill, are you a gentleman or more rabble? 
I am from the Marlborough line. Botha presses a stethoscope to his upper back and says, Breathe. Churchill has no problem following this order, either. You can read, yes? Graduate of Sandhurst. Some would doubt that possible, but yes, read and write, and oftentimes speak coherently. Will your family pay a ransom? I am certain of it. Please do inform the British of my capture. I am positive my family will pay whatever you wish for my safe return, but also your silence, he says, cursing himself for having a backup plan and using it so soon. The man casts his weepy eyes over Churchill, as if assigning him a value, and Churchill can only wonder at his as he is told, Stand back in line. Churchill again thinks it's an easy order and complies, falling in with the rest. Botha pulls the men out in turn to have small conversations with each. He never reveals too much, and Churchill marvels at how he seems to pull the truth from the other soldiers almost at will. It makes him feel a bit better about his own willingness. Smith says nothing, and even takes a rifle butt to the kidneys as punishment for an unheard insult. This hint of violence is a suggestion none are safe. Both a smirks as if finally getting it, and moves on telling the boar behind him taking notes. This one? Five hundred at most. Officers need to be broken before they produce a return. Enlisted work until they die. Eight hundred for them as a group we can do. The men with rifles enhance the sense he has lost his freedom if they decide to dispatch them here and now, because prisoners can be a pain after all, there's nothing he would be able to do but take the heroic death offered. This makes waiting to see if his uncle pays or not unappetizing. He doesn't doubt the Duke will, just how many months of feeding and caring for him the boar would be forced to undergo while the money travels south. It might be best to look for ways to escape, the thought surprises him. Then what? Join back up? Finish this war story the right way, get elected to Parliament a national hero, and die fat and retired, puffing a cigar? Yes, he decides with force. In surveying his immediate surroundings, he imagines the hut is for them, and guards stay outside the fence in one of the four tents. Open terrain surrounds, and if the little gully is where they corral the horses, a long sprint to freedom. It's a wait-and-see situation, he decides. So that's what he does. Get them all to the shop, Botha orders. Churchill doesn't know which outcome is worse, being broken or purchased. What would being bought mean towards a career in Parliament? It would be a weakness, going against everything he has ever earned. It would make him forever defeatable. Every living person on earth knows the Zulu did not like losing their war to the English, taking to the savannah and waging a costly continuance which has now become generational and impossible to stop. They could be anywhere in waiting. They didn't care whether English or Dutch, German or whatever. They killed all who were not Zulu. Small in number, high in consequence. They've almost ended all worth their homeland had to the English crown. The blood cost was turning out to be too high. Yet here they were, fighting the Boers for gold, knowing full well the whole of Africa was taking note and willing to follow in Zulu ideals. After the doctor examines each, they are given a burlap uniform bleached white and striped with indigo. Churchill thought his still smelled strongly of potatoes as they are led inside the fenced camp, meaning he is the first to wear it, and will likely be the last. Churchill claims a spot near the door of the shack. He lays down to mark his territory. The building is a dirt floor, thin sheet metal walls, and a tin roof. 
He counts eight beams and thinks for sure the six remaining soldiers and he can reduce the building to rubble if they tried and were not surrounded by men with guns. They are told nothing as the outside is shut away with a padlock and length of chain. Soft yellow light slips through cracks, but not enough to break up the deep shadows, so it's just dark yellow silhouettes sitting around, staring at each other. They did not separate us by rank. Churchill can't help thinking the boy sounds too young to be a prisoner of war. Yet here they all are prisoners, or even worse, merchandise. His comment sets off a few of the other surviving enlisted. They don't care. Going to sell us off as labor. I'm not going to be no slave. Well, then they'll use you as target practice. Likely worth as much as paper and a bullet anyway. The UW collecting must be a shit business. This camp barely has one building. You don't think they plan on marching us barefoot, do you? Churchill felt the short walk over the rough ground to the shack and would not relish being forced to do miles like that. He wiggles his toes and tries to enjoy their last moments of being pain-free, knowing something bad was coming soon to his itsy-bitsy, toesy-rosies. You heard the doctor, paying their respects to the Zulu, ain't they? This camp is nothing if an assault comes. They'll abandon us if they need to. I don't think we are here to be kept, Churchill volunteers to Smith, who crawls to a stop and sits down next to him. Certainly not, Smith agrees. He eyes every corner of the hut, and Churchill is certain he doesn't miss anything because there is nothing to miss. Just dirt, walls, and seven desperate humans. Smith was one of the worst students at the Royal Military Academy. From no family at all, he was forgettable. He was the type of officer to lead a hill charge, because any more advanced than that he would be worthless. Thus far, though, Churchill thinks he might have been wrong about old Randy Smith. He has proved himself willing to get into a fight, and even better, able to survive to fight the next round. Ready to get out of here? It's hard to miss the willingness, and if it weren't for the bulk of the assault group still outside the hut, Churchill half thinks Smith would attempt an escape now. Don't prepare yourself for a long stay. If they didn't separate us soon, it's because I don't think we are long for this earth. I have a feeling tomorrow there is going to be an auction, and after that, we will no longer be Mr. Botha's problem. We can fight and leave tonight. His voice is almost wistful. Fight? The word doesn't fit the vibe of barefoot and weapon-free. Nigh, our fight is over. From here on, we do that, we die. Bloody cock! Complaining will make little difference. Yeah? What will? Running, Churchill says pointing to the little cusp of land he would have put a corral. In it, three horses, and proof there is always a way to achieve freedom. 4. Churchill is woke, not remembering the decision to sleep, with a rude shove. Intent on staying so when a rough hand claps down hard over his mouth and sharp shh is injected straight into his ear. I'm leaving. Are you coming with me? Smith growls. Impressed, Churchill nods, and a plan is quickly hissed. Smith stands and makes his way to the padlocked door and bangs on it. Churchill waits for his part, heart beating the wall of his chest. He feels the chill of the red clay ground and African night. The idea of freedom gets his blood going hot, though, and nothing can keep a sweat from sprouting. God, please, I'm going to shit myself and as if those were magical words, the padlock is removed and the chain slithers to the ground. Just before it closes after the captain, Churchill jumps to his feet and begs, Oh, 
God, me too, please. For the briefest of moments, he thinks the man is going to turn him down, tell him to go back to sleep or wait for him to return with Smith. The enlisted begin to stir also, and the guard, getting nervous, grabs Churchill by the front of his shirt and jerks him free before slamming the door on a chorus of Me Too's just beginning. He leads them through the razor wire to a small latrine built with low walls. It is big enough for three people, so Churchill and Smith head in together. Ready, Smith says, pointing to a two-foot gap in the wall near the well-used privy pit. He is, and they go under opposite the sleepy guard and tiptoe barefoot toward the corral. It's an odd feeling, thinking any second he could lose control of his body, be shot dead, or recaptured, and until the horses neigh nervously around them, he was certain of it. With freedom so close neither man pussyfoots around, they are intent and quickly grab some mane and sit bareback on a mount each. He presses his heels into the horse's belly, and with a whinny, he is off. Feeling alone, he turns around to see Smith kicking at the other horses. They scatter, but some manage to head in the direction of the POW camp. Three horses isn't much of a stampede, but one horse does take out a couple of tents, and a second collapses the latrine walls with the sleeping guard caught under. Smith races to catch up while Churchill heals his horse to avoid it. Soon Churchill is surrounded by dark of night, and the space separating them from the closest boars feels safe at last. Neither knows how long the contingent of guards took to notice their absence. A day? A minute? Maybe even never. It does not matter to them, as long as no bullets pick that moment to reach out from the dark. The Englishmen are free, something neither thought possible less than a day ago. 5. They head east because that's where the English are, on the water of the Indian Ocean, keeping Zulu spears out of their backs. And in the morning, the sun slips from the horizon and bathes the savannah in bright red light. The terrain feels full to bursting with dangers. Mounted Churchill couldn't feel more conspicuous with his toes dangling naked as he rides bareback. Perhaps we should walk for a bit, he suggests as they let the horses water at the edge of a brown creek. They both take handfuls of water also, before sitting back, studying the horizon. The question isn't where we need to go, that's the easy part, to wherever the boars won't follow. The true quandary is what direction our death will come from. And as if Churchill summoned them from the depths of hell, a tsunami of muddy water washes over both of them, and one horse screams as a crocodile pulls it into the water. Churchill thinks the nightmare splashing will never be done. Not one crocodile, but five join the action and fight over the equine flesh. The duo watch. It's all they can do. When it ends and the many pieces are claimed and dragged off and smaller animals arrive to search for crumbs, they realize the other mount has run off. This leaves them with little choice but to walk, and the danger they become prey dictates they do so now. 6. Did that happen? Were they forced to wander across eastern Africa for weeks, using the stars to guide them, hoping one day to find the coast? Yes, and death lurks still and demands they either keep going or get ready to fight back. Survival has been a bit of a game, a game they had gotten good at. Yet as with all games, it had gotten old and time was growing short. The weather was turning, which in October meant more rain, 
so they longed to be deep in the Indian Ocean, heading back to English civilization soon. A bit over a mile down a dusty lane used by miners and farmers to move their wares is a way station. A single yellow bulb sways in the breeze marking it, and after several hours of scouting, they decide to test it to see if possibly they could use it to escape. Smith returns with a rustle of brush. There's a bounty on your head, Smith says, foraging in a newly acquired satchel. He pulls out a small loaf and rips it in two. Churchill eyes the bag. It looks a bit too full to be stolen. But his mouth is too full with moist sweet bread to ask right then how the captain came upon it and the supplies. Not yours, is Churchill's first question just before he takes the second half of mealy bread into his mouth. Cold and possibly on this earth far longer than it should be, it is likely the best thing the would-be politician has ever eaten. The sweet corn stands out, and if he survives, hunting down a bowl of it will be priority number one. No, couldn't give one shite about a Captain Smith. It's your picture at the way station on the wanted poster. Twenty-five pounds sterling for your capture, dead or alive. Churchill feels a thrill at that. A wanted man with a price on his head. Once they make it back, he'll certainly parlay it into a footnote on his political career. Twenty-five pounds isn't bad, Smith. Would make a bushman fairly rich. That it would, Churchill. That it would. And a boat back to Cape Town? Are words he might have said, but the blackness that covers them keeps them on the cusp of his tongue until he wakes hours later with a busted head and no left foot. One last transaction. The voice spoke the Queen's English with a cockney accent. Was told you already ran once. I don't have time to give chase, so consider this a precaution and maybe we can still be friends. Churchill tries to move. His body hurts and his head grows foggy. My foot. His voice trails off as if he wants to say more. Maybe find out if somehow he misplaced it. The wound is wrapped in dirty terry cloth through which he can see, once removed from the rest, the appendage was cauterized, likely with a branch pulled from a fire. He can still see small bits of char and ash clinging to the raw, wounded flesh. You've gotten a bit of infection, lad. The cockney-accented voice pulls his attention back, but his sight swims. The figure is dark and blurry and beyond. Are those monkeys screaming in a tree, throwing ripe fruit at each other? He feels farther from the coast than ever, farther from life, farther from caring. He makes to move, but feels a hand push him back, hard. It might be best to stay low, otherwise my investment of two pounds sterling will be for naught. Can still sell you for the bounty, dead or alive, as the other bloke said. But think those English muscles of yours can be used to dig a bit of ore from the ground until then. What say you? Ironically, he finds himself with nothing to say, or for that matter, a thought beyond pain in his head. Maybe it's because he realizes it is sometimes a mistake to try to look too far ahead, that oftentimes the chain of destiny can only be grasped a link at a time. He lets the hand push him back, and he closes his eyes, allowing sleep to come, and it does, falling over him like warm luxury. Brian Aiello hosts weekly podcasts on creativity and speculative fiction and is a writer of fantasy, sci-fi, and the macabre. Raised on Florida's Gulf Coast, Brian served in the Army, graduated from the University of South Florida, and now calls Brooklyn home. 
For more of his fiction and links to his podcasts, visit www.brianiello.com and follow him on Twitter at Briello. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.